The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. During its heyday in the Roaring Twenties, Cairo's nightlife district was the place to go for a world-class night out. From glitzy variety shows in smoky clubs to Arabic operas performed to adoring, raucous audiences, it was a scene suffused with both glamour and danger and dominated by a group of canny, enterprising women. Raphael Cormac delves into this world in his new book, Midnight in Cairo, and I spoke to him to find out more. Can you set the scene for us? So if we travelled back to Cairo's nightlife district in its heyday, what are some of the the sights and the smells and the sounds that we might encounter? So the heyday, really, the golden age of Cairo's nightlife was the 1920s, probably. That's, you know, it had been, existed a bit before then and carried on a little bit after, but that was the peak. Uh, And it was all centred around this district in the the middle of Cairo called Esbekea, which was itself all built around these big gardens, which had been laid out in the 19th century uh, by the ruler of Egypt, Khadiv uh, Ismail. He'd actually brought in the guy who did the Bois de Boulogne in Paris uh, and laid out these very nice gardens that people were supposed to walk around. He'd built it up in a sort of very fancy style. He'd built his opera house, modelled kind of on La Scala in Milan. He'd also built another theatre and a circus. And he was really trying to turn it into a kind of quite elite often, you know, European-inspired entertainment uh, area. But, you know, as people went, various other things, you know, sprang up around it. So people opened up bars, uh, people opened up music halls, uh, which were slightly less kind of salubrious than what the ruler had imagined they would be, you know, smoky places with dancers uh, and, you know, drinking until late in the night. Uh, People also started opening up their own independent theatres and cabarets. Uh, and what you would have seen sort of on a night out in 1920s Cairo was a huge mix of things, you know, from this opera house to cabarets run by Europeans who had come to Egypt and done in a kind of Parisian style, and then on to more Egyptian-style cabarets where everything was in, in Arabic, uh, you know, dancing, singing, variety shows. There was kind of a little bit of everything for everyone. What struck me most is you see so many women in charge of these places, uh, from cabarets to theatres to to everything. And it's kind of a thing that you're not told happened in early 20th century Egypt, uh, but it's sort of there everywhere. So we'll talk a lot more about those women um, a bit later, But I think that a lot of our listeners, um, especially in the US and the UK, might not be that familiar with what was going on in Egypt at the time. So can you give us a bit of historical background? So what happened in in 1919, which is the most important piece of historical background we really need for this, uh, is a big revolution in Egypt. So before 1919, 
the country had been run in various levels of direct rule and indirect rule uh, for a few decades by the British. Uh, and uh, the First World War is when the British really officially took over Egypt. And they kind of, you know, drained a lot from the country, both by making men join uh, join in with the war effort, which usually didn't mean fighting, but meant joining a labor corps, uh, and by requisitioning food and livestock and everything. Uh, so the country was kind of really hurting at the end of the First World War uh, and was in the control of the British, and people were starting to kind of resent that. Um, so in 1919, when the Paris Peace Conference happened, uh, the Egyptians decided that they were going to send some representatives uh, in order to, you know, join this new community of nations as an independent nation by themselves. But the British decided uh, that they didn't think that was a good idea. Uh, and they, in fact, arrested uh, and exiled these Egyptian sort of nationalist leaders who were then who were trying to vie for independence uh, and once they had done that, the people, I mean, because of this sort of build up over the decades of of, uh, yeah, of resentment towards British rule, rose up, took to the streets. It's kind of this, in, in the Egyptian telling of it, it's a very carnivalesque atmosphere, you know, national unity, everyone's out in the street, including lots of theatre performers and, and cabaret stars actually would come out, sing songs and, and sort of face up to the British. In the British telling of this, it's it's very different. They see it as kind of fanaticism, and they responded with quite a lot of violence. Um, but eventually, it was successful. Uh, in the early 1920s, Egypt becomes an independent country with various strings attached, which which kept uh, uh, which kept continued to be an issue until the 1950s. But Egypt is in the 1920s an independent country, and it has this real sense of both sort of national unity and a sense that things might be getting better. Uh, and that's definitely something we need to think about when we're looking at all this nightlife and entertainment, that there was behind it all, there's this real sense of optimism. Yeah. So how did this kind of melting pot of of influences play out in, in a nightlife sense? So you mentioned there that there were a lot of European influences, but were there other international influences at play as well? And what was the kind of Egyptian element of this nightlife culture? Yeah, I mean, Egypt in the 1920s was the most, so everyone says, one of, if not the most cosmopolitan countries in the world, and Cairo, the most sort of uh, cosmopolitan cities in the world, except perhaps Alexandria. So Egypt in the 1920s, Cairo in the 1920s, is this place that's attracting a huge number of different people uh, from uh, Eastern Europe, from Western Europe, it's kind of a boom town. A kind of people joke that's the the Dubai of the 1920s. In fact, the British presence, although politically is very important, culturally is is sort of not that significant. I mean, the French uh, presence is much more more influential in terms of culture. But people are coming also from Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, what is now. Um, and also a lot of people coming from Eastern Europe. And they're all thrown together uh, in this nightlife district. If you would look at a, a chorus line in uh, an ordinary nightclub, there would be you know, Hungarians, Greeks, Italians, Egyptians, Syrians, French, all of it. You tell the story of this nightlife culture primarily through the stories of women who were the stars of the scene. Why did you want to focus on women particularly? 
Uh, I think there's two, I mean, two reasons for that. One, which we sort of mentioned already, uh, which is that these stories are not often seen in your sort of the impression people often get of the 1920s in, in Egypt or sort of the early 20th centuries, that it's a very male-dominated place. Uh, and that's true in, in the case of politics, for instance, you know, high politics. At this time, women don't have the vote, for example, so uh, 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 and basically do not participate really significantly in high politics. But when you leaf through the pages of the entertainment magazines, they're everywhere. And I sort of wanted to delve into that and try and bring out what that means for, you know, historically. Uh, so that's the first reason. Um, and the second reason is just that I I feel it gives a very uh, unique way of looking at the nightlife period. So, I mean, I, I've been fascinated by that, the whole Cairo nightlife of the 1920s for a while. Um, but to use women as a way to get into it, uh, I think shows both uh, the great opportunities that it had. So, I mean, a lot of these women grew up very poor, had very little education, but managed to, through this nightlife scene, managed to really become independently wealthy, become independent, you, you know, in their lives uh, and really progress in, in sort of amazing ways. So looking at this nightlife through, through the women allows you to see that, you know, the opportunities that it had, but it also allows you to see downsides and some of the darker sides of the nightlife uh, because for every woman who became very successful, uh, there's another one who didn't. Mm. So what kind of roles were women taking on in this nightlife scene? Because they weren't only dancers and chorus line girls, for example, were they? No. I mean, so one of the um, uh, one of the central women in this book is uh, is called Badia Masabni. Uh, and she uh, had an extremely eventful life before even coming into the uh, into the nightlife scene. She was you know, born in Damascus was uh, the subject of sexual abuse as, as a child, which she sort of hints at but doesn't give many details of. Then the family moves to Buenos Aires uh, and then comes back. She ends up in Cairo eventually as a uh, actress, then moves to Beirut to become a singer. She's like constantly moving around the world, basically. Uh, but where we sort of join her uh, is the peak of her career, which comes in the mid-1920s, when she saves up, she managed to save up the money that she's made acting and singing and all the rest of it and opens her own nightclub, which uh, then became the great Arabic-speaking nightclub, possibly the great nightclub of, of Cairo's 20s and 30s, uh, and kept going, at it, including into the Second World War when it was uh, the destination uh, to go to for all British soldiers during the Second World War. Do we have any sense what a night out there would have been like? We've got quite uh, a lot of accounts of of evenings at Padilla's club. There were, I mean, she had two different clubs. She had a summer club and a winter club. The summer one was down by the Nile, uh, where there was kind of a breeze blowing through open air, uh, and uh, it would sort of alleviate somewhat the heat of Cairo's summers. And then the winter club was downtown in this Esbakea area. And, I mean, she was famous for bringing in acts from all over the world. She would travel around, uh, go to Europe, go to Spain, go to Syria and bring people. So a night at her club was a real mix of acts. She would always sing and dance. Uh, and then she would have, I mean, 
what is essentially a sort of variety floor show of the 1920s. You'd have singers and dancers, of course, with a with a musical backing, but you would also have sort of uh, weightlifters and um, this thing called a quick change artist to these people who would change costumes and sort of do different little impressions all the time. Uh, yeah, she had one Italian troupe comes through where a man impersonated a frog. She describes him sort of writhing around on the floor. It's quite hard to picture uh, what's going on. So that's the acts that she would put on, like extremely varied. Uh, as for sort of what it would be like to go, it would last pretty late into the night. There'd be a lot of champagne, probably other kinds of drinks, a pretty raucous atmosphere. Uh, it's it's pretty fair to say that it would be largely male on most um, most nights. Uh, though, but yeah, interestingly, she sort of, she put on uh, female-only matinees, which would be, it would be the same basic performance, uh, but it was for women who wanted to come and come to a cabaret show, but perhaps not have this sort of late-night raucous atmosphere dominated by men. And also that she had a section for, women only if they wanted to uh, come. But uh, the general sense is that the uh, the late night entertainment was quite raucous and, and masculine in its atmosphere. See, it all sounds incredibly exciting and glamorous, but you did mention earlier that there's obviously a, a darker side to this. And what were some of the um, objections to this nightlife scene or what criticisms did people level against it? Well, I mean, there were the usual criticisms that you expect from pretty much all nightlife scenes, which are it's kind of leading the youth of the nation astray. Uh, people are throwing their money away. I mean, since even the late 19th century in Egypt, people have been saying that people were really throwing their money away on these nightclubs. And also there was gambling in the area. So there was the usual moralistic obje- objections. Um, largely, I would say not specifically religious in um, in justification, although obviously there's some kind of, you know, the morals are in some way based on religion, but, but broadly speaking, it was more about what this was doing to the new independent country, which everyone thought was going to be great. Uh, and now look, it's youth that are being cast aside. So there's, there's that, which you would expect. Uh, but also, I mean, uh, if you were to look at it from a perspective of, of these women who were performing, uh, there's a lot of danger. I mean, one of the stories uh, that I go into a little in the book is the story of Imtisel Fauzi, who is a woman who actually started her career in Badia Masabni's nightclubs, like like so many women did. Uh, moved up a little bit, managed to get a couple of little film roles, then decided in the mid-1930s to open her own nightclub, uh, which she did with another woman, uh, Mary Mansour, uh, and together uh, they sort of were going reasonably well until this man from a, like a local gang. In almost every area in Cairo, there were these kind of strongman, uh, these gangs all clustered around a sort of central strongman, which ran a kind of protection racket. Anyway, one of these gangs went to himself, Fauzi, and said, pay us money, uh, essentially, or, you know, things might get difficult for you. Uh and she refused uh, quite bravely, uh, or perhaps she didn't even have the money, it's hard to say. Uh, and the gang then escalated things and it all eventually ended in her being murdered in the middle of one of her nightclub acts. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then they're staying in the Savoy Hotel in London and on a stormy night it was even, uh, she murders him, she shoots him in the, in the Savoy. He sort of stumbles out into the corridor and is discovered. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. The women involved in this scene, they had to they had to walk quite a difficult tightrope, didn't they? Because on the one hand, they were deemed morally lax or some people deemed them so. On the other hand, they were glorified and idealised as celebrities, which is quite a strange tension at play there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And some of them, some of the women really kind of exploited that tension. I, mean, I think probably my favourite woman in the in the book, uh, although hard to pick just one, uh, is uh, Munir Al-Mahdeya. She managed to create this kind of celebrity persona which played with these things, with this, like, with the moral laxity that people were condemning, but also were quite drawn to, obviously, and managed to get herself into the press and, and extremely popular. And she would kind of hold these big parties on her houseboat, uh, which became very famous, which, you know, these wild parties. She would, there were always rumors that she was having affairs with such man or another. And you kind of get the feeling that she was playing them up a little bit. She would she would send all these pictures of herself into the press, pictures of her dressing up as a man. She liked to do that. The notoriety brought more publicity, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's certainly how I read it. And and she's being, and she's kind of playing with that a little bit. And she, she has these close relationships with people in the press and asks them to plant stories. And if I'm right, she was also a pioneer of, Arabic opera as we as we would imagine it or was it a different kind of genre it was uh, yeah I mean it was I mean it's a version of Carmen uh, which is an opera that we you know and uh it's I mean Arabic theatre had always really included singing uh because uh that's obviously what the audience has wanted and and even before the 1920s the great theatre stars were also great singing stars. And this this one guy in the, in the late 19th century, Salema Higazi, he was called, uh, was famous more for his singing than his acting, really. And he tried to put on a version of Hamlet uh, in which he didn't sing. And the audience then all complained. Uh, and said they, and, you know, kept chanting until they forced him to put some songs into Hamlet because that's what people had gone for. So there's always this big musical element to, to Arabic theatre. And Munir al-Mahdeya, uh, so she started off as a nightclub singer in the 1905-ish, uh, before she went into theatre at all. And she really goes into theatre in the, in the 1910s uh, because all of the nightclubs in, in Egypt really get shut down, or most of them, during the war by the British. So she brings in uh, this 
singing, sort of nightclub singing onto the stage. So it sort of makes sense for her if she's going to perform a play to do one with songs in and therefore to do an opera. And she obviously hit on Carmen. She quite liked it. It's a big, strong central female role. It's probably appealing. Um, chance to do some dancing. Uh, she was famous for having like very extravagant costumes. So there was also a chance to put some of that in it. And so did a, managed to do a version of that in which she sort of mixed Arabic music. She'd hired a composer to kind of create this hybrid of the original with Arabic stylings. And it was hugely popular. I mean, shows sold out. The newspaper reports that people would fight each other to get to their seats. You mentioned earlier how she was really good at courting the press. And one of the other women that you talk about is a, is a actor called Rose Al Youssef, who founded a magazine, which I love, that she just called Rose Al Youssef. She called it after herself. How important was the media in generating these celebrities? And what kind of stuff did it report on, for example? The media is one of my main sources of information because in the mid-1920s, as this theatre is booming, so is the press. And like everyone who can is starting up their own little magazine. And they're usually extremely focused on on the women of, of Cairo's nightlife. I mean, there are gossipy stories about men, but many, many fewer than there are about, about women. And they're kind of obsessed with all the minutiae of, of, of actresses and singers' lives. So they run these features like, oh, what do our actresses and singers eat for breakfast? Uh, How do they answer the telephone? They actually give out some actresses' telephone numbers, which seems to be, uh, just print them in the newspapers. And they have these features where they go around to their house and take take photos in their house uh, and ask them about their sort of day-to-day life and careers. So people are really obsessed with knowing about the minutiae of the private lives of actresses and singers particularly. So it's very much a celebrity culture that we would recognise today. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. The kind of uh, a real birth of celebrity culture in Egypt, which came at this great confluence of newly independent state, new uh, burgeoning nightclub scene and burgeoning press. But Rosal Youssef really played, I mean, did something you know, extraordinary by looking at what was going on with the theatre press and saying, this isn't great. Uh, One, she was attacked quite a lot herself in the theatre press, uh, but also just, you know, she saw the newspapers and the magazines not really treating performance as a serious art, and she wanted to change that. So, you know, to do that, she started her own magazine. Uh, and really kind of, she sees the means of production in a way uh, that no one before her had. Um, you mentioned earlier somebody being murdered offstage, but um, what were some of the other offstage scandals that, that rocked this world? One very big scandal of the 1920s that ties in in, in strange ways to the theatre world is that of Ali Fahmi and his wife, Marguerite Alibert. Now, Ali Fahmi is this aristocratic Egyptian from a from a very important family, sort of young playboy type, very rich, early 20s, spends a lot of time in Cairo's nightlife, kind of throwing the money around, uh, manages to meet this French woman called Marguerite Alibert, uh, and they get married. It turns out to be an extremely uh, 
unpleasant marriage. They they, they don't get along. Uh, uh, there's a, an insinuation, as we'll go to later on, that, he, that he's maybe abusive. Uh, and then they're staying in the Savoy Hotel in London. And on a stormy night, it was even, uh, she murders him. She shoots him in the, in the Savoy. He sort of stumbles out into the corridor and is discovered. Uh, then there's this huge court case in London uh, in which uh, she uh, says it's self-defense, says that he's abusive, uh, that she killed him in self-defense, uh, which the jury agrees with. Uh, and in Egypt, though, this becomes a huge scandal because uh, a lot of the, the her defense focuses on the fact that he is this oriental, quote-unquote, man, and kind of plays up uh, these stereotypes that a lot of people have about Egyptians and Egyptians in Egypt notice this uh, and don't take very kindly to it. What then happens a few years later is that one of the great stars of Egypt's theatre, Yusuf Wahbi, marries uh, Ali Fahmi's sister, moves into her uh, huge villa in, in a very fancy area of Cairo. Uh, and so he claims, discovers in one of the... Uh, chest of drawers, letters from a lover to Marguerite Alibert. Uh, and so the implication is that she is being unfaithful to Ali Fahmi. And he uh, he is, in his own memoirs, he says he's scandalized by it, that, you know, that she could do this. And he ends up writing a play about the whole, uh, whole event, which sort of basically the message of which is Egyptian men don't marry foreign women, uh, which then goes on to be turned into the first Arabic talking movie. Uh, because in the in the 20s and 30s, the film business is also really coming up. And in the early 30s, everyone's racing to make the first Arabic talkie. Uh, and it's Yusuf Wahbi who does this eventually based with a film that's based on a play that's based on this huge scandal of the early 1920s. It's very complex. So, so in terms of that um, connection between... Arabic, Egyptian, and kind of international um, people. Were most of the women who were the cornerstones of this Cairo scene, were they Egyptian? Uh, yes. I mean, all of, all of the women I, I look at in the book are Arabic-speaking. Uh, they're not all Egyptian. So Badia Masamani, for instance, is uh, from Damascus. Rosal Youssef actually also grew up in, in Lebanon, uh, but they are all Arabic speaking. And, and sort of one of the things I'm trying to show in this book is that there is a cosmopolitan world that includes uh, people from Europe and from Arabic speaking countries all sort of working together in these nightclubs. Uh, because there's often a sense when telling the story of cosmopolitan Alexandria, for instance, that it's a very segregated kind of world. So you had Brits who would only hang out with sort of other Brits and Europeans, and then you would have a sort of, you know, the quote-unquote, what people used to call the native city, who they wouldn't sort of interact with. But what you see going on in Cairo is everyone really together on, on the nightclub scene. They, they, there was this genre of um, theatre that also grew in the 1920s called Franco-Arab Review, uh, which in which the performances were done in this mix of languages. Uh, kind of, there would be Arabic, but then also 
there would be a song in French by a, by a touring French singer or, or, you know, parts of the plays would be in Arabic. There would be these kind of vaudeville plays with sort of comic, comic farces. And they were all, everything was coming together in this kind of at least less segregated uh, atmosphere than, than people are used to seeing. Mm. So with all the women that you, you look at, um, they became successful. And do you get any sense of what the secrets of their success were? Was it different for each woman or were there certain things that really struck a chord with, with you know, audiences at the time? One of the common denominators for all of them is that they're extremely good at not just at performing, but at managing their careers. Uh, I mean, Padilla Masabni is, is a good example of that. that she made sure to have a stake in her own nightclub, you know, to, to run it. Uh, and the same, the same is kind of true for, for Munir al Mateya as well. And the great singer of, of Egypt in the 20th century, Um Kalsum, is also coming up at this time. I mean, she is remembered as the sort of big Arabic star in, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but this is the time when her career begins. And she is extremely good at cutting her own deals with record companies. Uh, and it's, it's this fact that they're, you know, that a lot of these stars are making their own money that allows them to have these long careers and be successful. So it's not only a matter of talent. I mean, there are lots of talented women who kind of fell by the wayside. It's a matter of combining, um, combining the talent with, with business savvy. On um, Um Kaltoum, who you just mentioned there, she was interesting, wasn't she? Because she kind of built herself this backstory about being a very wholesome, moral country girl, essentially. Do you think that was part of the reason for her success? Yeah, I mean, she really had the, the complete opposite approach to the press that Munir al-Mahdeya had. So Munir al-Mahdeya was throwing her house parties, you know, having affairs, planting stories in the press, being living this kind of consciously subversive life. Whereas Um Kalsum was the total opposite. One, she, she kind of barely spoke to the press. Uh, she built this kind of wall around her, her private life. And when she did speak to the press, it was always to, um, you know, present a kind of a, a wholesome image of herself as slightly different from the rest of the other nightclub singers. You know, not quite like them. I mean, although still she was, I mean, she was still criticised by some people for um, uh, for being too salacious, but uh, her own approach was to very carefully stage manage this quite wholesome image. And I think, I mean, it's unclear to say whether that made her more popular at the time, uh, but I think... What has happened subsequently is uh, she has risen above everyone else in the kind of public consciousness uh, because maybe once the sort of fun and the excitement of the nightlife sort of uh, goes away, you know, once the once people's careers are over, uh, then maybe it's a, a story of being um, morally upright that kind of keeps you as a national icon. So on that note of the party being over, how did this scene come to an end, really? In many ways, it still continues, uh, although not, I mean, in the same venues and not exactly the same shows, but there's still a a tradition of dance in Egypt, which keeps going, you know. We've got a lot of dancers now who have Instagram accounts. 
uh, and post videos and, and perform in nightclubs. But yeah, this golden age uh, fizzled away as, I mean, a variety of reasons. One reason is simply that film came to replace a lot of this stuff. So people weren't going out to nightclubs and, and theatres as much because they were going to the cinemas instead. Um, but another big reason is uh, in the 1950s, uh, there's the, the Free Officers Revolution and NASA comes to power uh, and Egypt. A lot of the uh, foreigners who made up large parts of the performers as well as you know, part, much of the audiences of some of these shows uh, left Egypt, really. Uh, and so part of that, the cosmopolitan scene that we've been talking about uh, fades away. Mm. Um, so I think for my final question, I just wanted to ask you how looking at this nightlife scene and the women that dominated it gives us a different perspective on this era of Egypt's past. I would say that one thing I was trying to do with this book is is to look at the Middle East from a from a different way uh, to how we see it more generally, not not only Egypt in the nineteen twenties, but uh, I mean, it strikes me when you go into a bookshop in the UK, uh, you go to the Middle East section, and it's very much uh, politics, uh, war, uh, sort of how to solve Israel-Palestine or, or that kind of thing. And you don't really get a sense of of what the culture of the Middle East is like and what, in fact, people are really interested in. I mean, I think in Egypt, there's st- still a lot of people are, are interested in this period and the, the interest is growing now, even in the past 10 years, there's been a kind of uptick of people looking back to this period. So, yeah, what I try to do is... Uh, is write a book uh, that could mean something both to an Egyptian audience and to a Western audience uh, at the same time, and not just through the lens of seeing the Middle East as a problem, which I think a lot of books do, and not just through the lens of a very male-dominated high politics. That was Raphael Cormac. His book, Midnight in Cairo, The Female Stars of Egypt's Roaring Twenties, is out now, published by Saki. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collins.